Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really interesting conversation on EBIS staging of Hyler N3 nodes for lung cancer. Today, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Ost as our guest, and we'll be discussing his article in CHEST entitled, Is Biopsy of Contralateral Hyler N3 Lymph Nodes That Are PET-CT Negative Necessary? when performing EBIS staging. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll go ahead and get started by asking Dr. Ost to introduce himself. Dr. Ost? Uh, thank you. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is David Ost. I'm professor of medicine at uh, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, uh, where I practice uh, interventional pulmonology. Great, David. An absolute pleasure to have you with us. So maybe we should get down to why you decided to discuss this topic. Why is it important to, uh, first of all, stage uh, lung cancer? And why did you focus specifically on PET-CT negative um, hyla N3 lymph nodes? Uh, certainly. Well, you know, as we all know, treatment of lung cancer really depends on accurate staging. So uh, convex EBUS, which I will you just use the term EBUS, is fundamental to that. It's in the ACCP guidelines as the uh, recommended staging method, at least for the first test. So how we do EBUS staging and making sure we get it right uh, is important. But there's, you know, a lot of what we do is based on experience and practice. Some of it is based on very rigorous data, and others are more empiric. So one question which comes up is when you do EBUS, if you're doing it under moderate sedation, we've all had patients who aren't that cooperative, who, you know, maybe they've had a history of alcohol abuse or drug abuse, and they're just too uh, uncooperative to complete the procedure. So you're always faced with that dilemma when you do moderate sedation of you want to do systematic and thorough, but you have to be fast. And the in our practice, we use general anesthesia, but a lot of practices uh, use moderate sedation. So we asked the question, in the contralateral hyalur lymph node, where we observe that there is a fairly low probability, based just on experience, of disease, is it really worth sampling that lymph node when you are time-constrained under moderate sedation? You know, when you have general anesthesia, you have the luxury of time, and you should be systematic, and you want to start with the contralateral N3 nodes, sample all of them first. Usually, we start with the contralateral hilum, then the contralateral mediastinum, then we go, which are both N3, then you go to the N2 nodes, and then the N1. But under moderate sedation, if those contralateral hilar nodes really very rarely have disease, and you're under time pressure, so to speak, would it be reasonable to start with the contralateral mediastinal nodes, which are higher yield and allow you to save time? That was really the basic question. And this actually doesn't have data. You know, what we do in practice is we sample 
systematically all lymph nodes measuring five millimeters or greater by EBUS, even if they're less than one centimeter on CT and PET negative, which is why we focused on that group. If they're PET positive lymph nodes, you sample them. If they're enlarged on CT, meaning one centimeter or larger, you sample them, you know, no matter what. But if they're PET negative and CT negative, meaning less than a centimeter, we said, well, maybe we can skip them in that one instance if the probability is low. Now, it doesn't mean you should always skip them. You have to use judgment. But providing data to clinicians uh, allows them to make a more informed judgment for a given individual. That's a pretty good overview. So let's uh, uh, dive into what you mean by hyalur N3 nodes. We were always taught that, you know, uh, hyalur could include um, 11, 10, or 12. Which one specifically are you focusing on? Is it all three of them, just uh, 11? Uh, which nodes are you focusing on? In this study, it's really just 11. Uh, our routine protocol is that we look at all lymph nodes systematically, sampling those that are 5 millimeters and larger, but our system, we only look at 11. Uh, we don't usually look at 10 unless it's enlarged on CT or PET positive, and we don't look at 12 unless it's enlarged or PET positive. So in this particular study, it's only um, a station 11. Uh, so on the left, it's 11L, which is the left hyalur lymph node, and on the right, it's uh, 11RI, which is the right inferior lymph node between the right middle lobe and the right lower lobe, and 11RS, which is superior, which is the lymph node between the right upper lobe and the bronchus intermedius. And then maybe you could comment on why um, we don't rely solely on PET-CT. Um, some would say, you know what, if it's cancer, it should light up. Uh, what's the data for PET-CT lighting up if it is cancer? What's the sensitivity? I think you mentioned this in your article. Uh, yes. You know, the problem with PET-CT, it's, it's still a vital test. It's very important for staging, but you will frequently get uh, both false negatives and false positives. The problem with false negatives is the PET-CT understages the patient, and uh, you end up operating potentially on a patient who has N2 or N3 disease, and you end up doing futile surgeries. You drive up cost, and you get complications. The problem with uh, a false positive uh, PET-CT is that you end up doing um, uh, uh, avoiding surgery when missing the opportunity for surgery in patients who might be potentially curable. So as per the ACCP guidelines, you really should be doing a systematic staging to avoid those types of errors. Um, PET-CT does have a role, uh, which is a very important role um, in staging. It's just not sufficient. Um, in terms of data, uh, there are actually some quantitative predictive models now that you can uh, use, which will give you estimates of the probability. And those have been published. I think another one will be coming out in chess shortly. Uh, one is the HAL model. That's H-A-L. And um, our group published that, and it gives you the probability based on PET-CT as well as some other risk factors that you will have either N0 or N1 disease versus N2 or N3 disease. So it's binary 
right? N0 or N1 versus N2 or 3. And the four risk factors for the HAL prediction model are histology, that's the age, uh, adenopathy as assessed by PET-CT, um, the uh, um, uh, age, Sorry, A is age, L is uh, the uh, lymphadenopathy, and then there's one other, which is location. So if you have a centrally located tumor, uh, you're at more risk. Now, there's a different model, HOMER, uh, which has also uh, been published, which gives you, instead of a binary outcome, it gives you N0 probability, N1 probability, and N2 or 3. So three possible, it gives you three different probabilities. And the reason that's useful is if you're going to give um, radiation therapy like SBRT, then you really want that precise estimation of the probabilities. You don't want N0 and N1 lumped together. You want to know what's the probability of N0 for your SBRT. Um, the reason why I bring those up, those are kind of practical. It highlights the uh, problems with false positives and false negatives with PET-CT, but they are good, and they're, they inform our decision-making. But it also brings up that's something that we wanted to do in this study, which is think precisely with a high degree of granularity. Really, what this study does is it asks a very precise question, which is just the contralateral uh, 11 L or 11R lymph nodes, and we had to re-abstract the data with that level of precision because in the literature, you know, most of the literature, including the stuff that I've contributed, lacked that the necessary granularity to make those types of clinical um, decision support uh, tools or uh, guidance, uh, which this problem requires. Gotcha. So my understanding of the rationale for your study is, say, for example, I have cancer, lung cancer mass on the right side, you know, right upper lobe. The question I'm asking myself is, if I've done PET-CT and it's negative on the left 11L, do I need to do EBA staging? So the question I have for you is, um, should this be done under general anesthesia versus moderate sedation? It appears at your center that you do all your procedures under general anesthesia, um, but obviously there's a lot of um, variability in practice in other institutions. Uh, what are your thoughts on general anesthesia versus moderate sedation? Uh, yes. So just to clarify your point, you're exactly right in that example of um, you have right-sided tumor, you have a PET-negative a contralateral hyalur lymph node, uh, you still do EBA staging. It's The question is whether you need to sample the 11L uh, lymph node, the contralateral hyalur lymph node. And in terms of general anesthesia, you are correct. We do all of our staging with general anesthesia. And if it's available in your institution, my own bias, uh, without a lot of data to support it, although there is some indirect data, is that I think using general anesthesia is a better approach. Um, what's the data to support that assertion? Well, it's indirect, but um, for example, there is a randomized control trial by um, uh, Dr. Casal, who's a member of our group, um, where they looked at, they randomly assigned people to either general anesthesia or moderate sedation, and um, Dr. Casal's a very good bronchoscopist, he's super speedy, but in 7% of the cases, they couldn't finish the EBUS sampling 
under moderate sedation. Now, different centers who do moderate sedation will have different numbers. I'm sure there are people who will claim to be faster, and uh, you know, I, I'm not going to speak to that. I, I know Dr. Casal; he's very speedy, but it's just who the patient is. So my own bias is to always do general, and I think at an institutional level, at a leadership level, one thing we've frequently done wrong in pulmonary medicine is, and you'll see it all the time, you even see it in the ACCP guidelines, it says, if resources are available, well, when you have good data to support things, it should be a mandate to leadership that they need to respond and make those resources available, right? The ACCP guidelines actually don't say that. They don't say, and they probably should say, there's sufficient evidence that institutions should provide this routinely. Now, that's uh, a different level, but it's an important thing to address. So I believe this. I believe it based on that data. The acquire registry also showed that, which compared data across multiple centers, multiple different hospitals, that hospitals that didn't use moderate sedation Oh, sorry, hospitals that use general anesthesia sampled more lymph nodes and smaller ones than hospitals which uh, used moderate sedation. Now, that's not a physician-level or patient-level variable. It's really a context variable of the institution and how well-resourced uh, pulmonary medicine is. And ideally, we should fight that problem, which is a lack of resourcing by using data and uh, good leadership. Then I agree, David. You, uh, data and evidence and uh, good leadership. So I think you've set the stage for this um, the discussion really, really well. So let's get into uh, your study methods um, and how you went about performing your study and how they addressed any limitations of uh, any previous studies. David? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, this is a retrospective uh, observational cohort study. It's a single-center study done at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And what we did is we looked back at 10 years of uh, bronchoscopies, and we took all patients who had a PET-CD done and were treatment-naive, so no restaging, no uh, neoadjuvant therapy, so that they uh, would have be representative of clinical practice. And they had to have, as you mentioned, a PET-CT negative contralateral hyalur lymph node. So it was okay if you had positive mediastinal nodes, but if your uh, 11L lymph node was PET-positive, you were not included if it was a right-sided tumor. If you had a left-sided tumor, you had to have a PET-CT negative Right, right hyalur lymph node, and the lymph nodes had to be sampled. So by CE-bus, they had to be five millimeters or larger on E-bus, and we had to go and sample them. And we always do it the same way. It's a systematic method. So we took all of those patients, and we had some of the data from before, but what we lacked was individual lymph node data, meaning we recorded every single individual lymph node, its location, and its result for that lymph node. And the primary outcome was the proportion of patients with PET-CT negative lymph nodes in the contralateral uh, hilum. And what we did was we pre-specified, uh, importantly, 
the right side has two lymph nodes, you notice. We said if either lymph node was positive, we counted that as a positive, and they both had to be negative. Now, that gives two chances on the right side as opposed to one chance on the left side. So we did pre-specify that we would check to see if there was a difference between the left side and the right side, but there really wasn't. And our threshold number, we said, okay, our null hypothesis is that the probability is 5% or greater. And we set out to disprove that null hypothesis. How did we arrive at that 5% uh, threshold is, a, is an important question. You know? And it's really a clinical significance question. Like, at what level of probability would you consider it low enough that you might consider not sampling the lymph node if you had to use moderate sedation? And the way we got at that answer was we went to experts, interventional pulmonologists, board certified at uh, four different hospitals, and we framed that exact question. We said, if you had to use moderate sedation and you knew the probability of nodal disease was less than X, how low does X have to be for you to consider not sampling the lymph node? And of course, answers varied a lot, but the median answer was 5%. And the 75th percentile, uh, meaning 75% of IP physicians surveyed would be willing to not do it was 3%. So if we could get well under 3%, at least three quarters of physicians who were surveyed might consider sometimes not sampling it. Now, that doesn't mean the threshold is perfect, right? You know, that's just what we use for sample size. Um, but it is a useful thought experiment. And in an individual patient, each clinician has to think about that threshold uh, separately. But that's what we did. We, we got all the cases. And, um, and then we did a secondary analysis to say, are there any factors, risk factors, which identify patients who might be at higher risk where you definitely should sample the contralateral hyalur lymph nodes, and uh, and we found some of them. I can go into the results uh, when you're ready. Definitely. Um, so uh, just some clarifying comments which popped up to me when I was reading your article. Um, which needles did you use? There's 19-gauge, 21-gauge, 22-gauge. Uh, which EBUS needles did you uh, use for your study? Uh, overwhelmingly, it's the, the 22, you know, but each case is done at the physician's discretion, right? And uh, they, they're free to use either. Um, in our practice, we very rarely use 19-gauge for um, for lung cancer uh, staging just because uh, studies show no significant difference, at least for lung cancer, for, for EBUS. And that was shown from the Acquire Registry, I think by the, the Hopkins group, if I remember correctly. Um, but uh, so, so it's very routine sampling, so 20, 22 gauge. Gotcha. And then you said that your general practice at uh, your institution is to use general anesthesia. So you'd say not a single patient received moderate sedation uh, during those 10 years. Uh, that is correct. For every CE bus, every single patient, you know, and so, you know, we're, we're given a luxury. We have general anesthesia available to us five days a week um, uh, for as long as we need it in the bronchoscopy suite. And I think that should be, you know, that context variable, providing that level of service, really improves the practice. And so gotcha. patients get what they need. 
Yeah. And then your study population was those with the Hyla N3 that was PET-CT negative. But as part of that population, you included those, you restricted it to those whose N3 Hyla node was sampled. Now, when you add that second component of N3 Hyla sampled, um, what utility does it provide the clinician? Because it implies that the procedure has already been performed rather than uh, before when you're sitting with the patient in front of you prior to the procedure. Um, that that's absolutely correct. So, you know, in the uh, cohort, there were uh, about 1,737 patients had bronchoscopy over those 10 years. Now, of those 1,737, 1,567 had contralateral hyalur N3 nodes that were negative by PET-CT and were eligible to be in the study. But of those 1,567, 828 were excluded because their PET-CT negative lymph nodes, they were eligible, but their lymph nodes were less than 5 millimeters on EBUS, and therefore they were not biopsied. So you'd say, wow, that's a lot of patients, and that this is the potential for bias, right? And so does that really inform clinical decision-making? But probably while that bias is still there, the overall probability um, that we offer, um, we can imagine if we had done EBUS in those 828 patients uh, where it was not done, what would the results have been? Would it have been similar to the ones, the 739 where we did do a biopsy? Would it be higher? Would the prevalence of cancer be higher or would it be lower? Well, it's probably that most likely that the prevalence of cancer in the 828 patients who were not sampled would be lower. And why do I say that? Well, because their lymph nodes are smaller, right? Everyone got sampled whose lymph nodes were 5 millimeters or larger. And anyone who had less than 5 millimeters was not sampled. So the prevalence in the non-sampled people is probably lower. And previous data does suggest that patients with higher lymph node size by EBUS, the lymph nodes themselves are more likely to be positive. So the overall probability, if you took everyone, let's say in a counterfactual universe, all patients get sampled no matter what their lymph node size is. That probability is actually probably even lower than ours, right? That um, in ours, we, uh, we sampled five millimeters and larger, so we get a higher proportion than the under five millimeter group. So I think the probability estimate that we obtain, um, while it ha- does have missing data and while it's biased, it's slightly biased high rather than low right? Because we didn't sample the lowest, the smallest lymph nodes. I think that answers your, does that answer your question? No, no, it definitely does. I think you've argued your point well. Um, so let's get into the results of your study. So um, of these patients who uh, underwent um, biopsy of the contralateral hyla uh, N3 that was PET-CT negative, um, what was the uh, incidence of cancer and uh, what was your interpretation of uh, the findings? Okay, so of the 739 patients, um, five patients uh, had a called contralateral hyalur N3 nodal metastasis. So um, for the fellows out there and the attendings who want to look good in rounds, I'm going to give this as all, I'm going to use round that to 0.7. So 0.7% of patients had a called nodal metastasis compared to the 5% threshold, which remember was established by experts, but it's not 
necessarily the right threshold. It was significantly less than the 5% threshold, which was the median of what the expert panel uh, found to be uh, clinically actionable. Uh, it was also signif- statistically significantly less than the 3% threshold that 75% of experts would find clinically actionable. As I mentioned earlier, there was no difference between left and right side, uh, which, was re- which was encouraging. And then we asked the secondary outcome question of, are there risk factors which we could identify which are associated with an increased risk of having higher contralateral higher uh, metastasis. And what we found was that if your PET CT was positive for uh, um, contralateral mediastinal N3 disease, then your chance of having contralateral higher disease went up. So just to give an example to make sure that um, I'm articulating that correctly. Imagine you had a patient who had a PET-CT. They have a right upper lobe tumor, just like you said before, and uh, their uh, 4L lymph node is PET-CT positive. Well, then the chance that their 11L lymph node, which is PET-CT negative, the chance of there being malignancy is actually higher, and it goes up. How high does it go? It goes up roughly to about 7%. So you can see that's a, a, above our 5% threshold, and uh, you know you would definitely want to sample it in those cases. If you had a PET-CT and, the only, and you have the right upper low mass and the only PET-CT avid lymph node was, say, the uh, 11RS and the 4R, then you would have this option of, uh, deciding whether or not uh, you were going to do it. And this is assuming you're using moderate sedation and, and you don't have the luxury of time. Um, is that pretty clear about the, the risk factors or not really? Oh, no, that makes perfect sense. So my, my take home from it was, as you said, with general anesthesia, you would try to uh, biopsy as many nodes as possible in a systematic fashion. But if you were pressed for time, which often occurs in moderate sedation, uh, we have a shorter interval to get the right nodes. If your PET-CT contralateral N3 was negative, your chance of cancer is pretty low, so you would probably not biopsy that unless your contralateral mediastinal N3 was PET-CT positive. Yep. Okay. So what are the limitations of your study? So bearing in mind that uh, you've come up with the You've answered a pretty important question. Um, there's a lot of patients, a lot of clinicians who don't have the luxury of general anesthesia uh, five days a week. Um, they have to perform all their procedures under moderate sedation. This answers a relevant clinical question. What are the uh, limitations in your study that should cause some uh, clinicians to pause before fully adopting um, the, uh, your findings and the interpretation of your findings? Well, you know, one important limitation, while it seems like we have a large sample size, you'd say, well, 1,700 patients and, well, really only 700 some because that's the number that got biopsied. That's the effective sample size. But because the outcome is rare, we actually don't have that much statistical power to identify predictors. As a rough rule of thumb, you need at least 10 events uh, to reliably identify one predictor. And we did find one, but that's only one. It doesn't mean there are not other 
predictors such as central location or those other ones. So we, we have to be cautious when we think about our ability to predict who's at higher risk of having contralateral hyalurnodal uh, involvement. Um, uh, for for that reason, the really the the power question related to sample size. Um, the another significant limitation is, of course, this is a single center study. So when you consider how would this apply to other institutions, if you were going to apply it or redo the study there, uh, everything that is unique to our center were a cancer center. We have super experienced cytopathologists. Would that work out equally well? Maybe, maybe not. You really would need to verify it at another institution. Having said that, we can con- conceptualize that through a thought experiment. If other centers have less experienced cytopathologists, then they would presumably have more, they would have more misses, meaning they would miss the, the call of cancer. And your incidence of cancer that you would find would be even less than this super low amount. And, you know, of course, if they were better than us, then they might find a slightly higher number. Um, But that's that's somewhat uh, less likely. But generalizability really needs uh, other centers to uh, replicate the results and and find it. And then finally, there's the uh, issue of patient selection. You know, uh, our patient population is um, partly from the Texas region uh, that we draw from as well as referrals, but all of these were new cancers. Um, whether or not those are representative of other cancers, what I'll call in the community at other centers, uh, probably the answer is yes, but uh, if, if there are differences, then that could impact the outcomes as well. Um, you did mention already, I think we've covered the idea that we did not biopsy everyone, uh, because, and the people we didn't biopsy all had lymph nodes less than five millimeters by EBUS, so there is some uncertainty about the actual proportion, and our the direction of the bias is that our number is probably higher than the uh, true number if we had biopsied everyone, meaning including the lymph nodes less than five millimeters, so some some degree of inaccuracy as well. Yeah, those are all very important limitations. Um, in the, initially, you had mentioned that this was a retrospective study, and some may ask, you know, maybe how, how can you verify that all your clinicians followed the protocol that you stated up front where they followed it in a set way? Would it not be, would the study not have greater power if it was a prospective uh, where you can actually state how often clinicians followed the systematic sampling that was required? What would your response to that question be? Um, yeah, I, w- I would hesitate to use the word power. Um, uh, just you know, statistic because it's used in different settings. Statistical power would not be increased. You know, if you had the same sample size, what you would have if you did it prospectively is you could guarantee the the quality of the protocol that everyone did do it the same way, um, and that uh, the threat to validity. Well, would be less, right? You know, let's think about this. If, if for example, different physicians are doing it differently, which they're not. There's only five of us who do it at MD Anderson. It's it's pretty standard. Um, but it, if they were randomly skipping people who uh, had.
had lymph nodes larger than five millimeters and choosing not to sample them, then that would lead to, to error. A prospective study is always going to be better in that sense in that you, since you know what you're looking for, you're going to collect better quality data than you would in a retrospective analysis. If the data is uh, incomplete, so for example, if ECOG is a important variable, but I just don't get it in my clinic visit, in a retrospective study, I can never go back and get it. But in a prospective study, if I know ECOG is important, I get it in every single patient. My data is more complete. It's more accurate. Or as you said, in this case, um, I do it systematically and I make sure there's no um, protocol violations. That's going to be better. Um, in other cases, really, there's no difference between retrospective and prospective. So, for example, age. Well, that's so easy to get, and everyone has it. There's no missing data, and there's no question of age. If you're doing a study where age is a risk factor, there's no difference between retrospective and prospective. Here, um, because, and, and you've hit on the uh, a very important point is you have to be absolutely certain that everyone's doing it the same way every time. Um, but we pretty much are, you know, and you can tell, you know, the reason why is um, we take pictures of all the lymph nodes, uh, even when we don't sample them. So the, the bronchoscopy report has that 11L lymph node, which is three millimeters in size, right? And we can validate, yeah, the, the lymph node was less than five millimeters and it wasn't sampled. If there's no picture, Maybe they skipped it, but it was larger than five millimeters, and therefore we would have an underestimate of true cancer probabilities. So I'm pretty pretty confident in this case that the pro protocol really is followed in a very standard fashion uh, for these lymph nodes. Does yeah, that make sense? useful to know? Yeah, no. I mean, having that data points of uh, the, the taking a photo of the size of the lymph node would definitely uh, increase the validity of your study. So let's turn to those patients that weren't sampled. Uh, do you have any data as to their outcomes? Did they subsequently develop cancer or end up having metastatic disease? Um, do you have any data on that, or is that a future study uh, under work? No, we we really don't, and um, it's it's definitely. I've talked to other physicians who are interested in this field. It's a super hard area to study because, you know, how do you, when they develop metastasis, how do you prove that it came from that lymph node, you know, where it was less than five millimeters or maybe what, you know, they develop a PET-CT positive lymph node there in the future, but it doesn't mean it was present at the time of the bronchoscopy. So we really haven't um, been able to further I'll say, clarify that in terms of outcomes. Um, additionally, we, we don't really have data on, like, for example, the people who were sampled versus not sampled in terms of what their uh, contralateral hydrolymph nodes looked at six months later. You know, the, how many became PET-CT positive? Or, and the problem is we, we don't verify them, right? If you develop metastatic disease recurrence, we don't go looking at just that lymph node. You know, you have a, a bone met or an adrenal metastasis pops up. Well, we're not going to go looking at your contralateral hilum. So that's why we don't have a way of, of really uh, approving long-term um, recurrence rates in this population. Uh, tough area. Tough area. Yeah. 
it, it, it's very complicated. So let's uh, get down to um, the brass tacks here. So how do your findings advance the research and clinical practice of lung cancer EBA staging? Well, I think in the uh, current setting, for centers which are using moderate sedation, and there are probably going to be a lot of them, even for the next couple of years, uh, hopefully more and more people have access to general, but uh, in many areas of the world, uh, this will be true. If you're practicing with moderate sedation and you have on an individual patient-by-patient basis, you assess that patient and you're weighing those two competing goals. I want to do complete staging without running out of time, okay? And you say, okay, in this patient, I'm very confident that if I can get I can get all the lymph nodes done. You can still do the contralateral hyaline node. But in some patients where you're not so confident, then you may be able to skip those nodes and go start with the contralateral. Still end three nodes you start with. You start with the contralateral mediastinal nodes, end three nodes, rather than the contralateral hyalur end three nodes. So that's one fundamental change you would make in your practice. The second thing it adds is it says, whenever I see um, a PET CT, which shows PET positive and three nodes in the contralateral mediastinum, I do have to sample the contralateral hyalur node, even when it's PET CT negative, because there's a 7% chance that I will find cancer there. That's that rule of seven. So 0.7% if you took all comers uh, will have contralateral hyalur nodal involvement even when it's PET-CT negative. In that subset though, where you have a contralateral mediastinal N3 PET positive node, your chance goes up from 0.7 to 7%. Um, So that's how it would change your practice uh, in everyday life. Got you. And you had mentioned at the beginning the importance of, you know, having general anesthesia available to perform these procedures. In the real world where we not every uh, clinician has access to a cancer center, a lot of resources, um, some clinicians don't even have PET-CTs before they're doing their uh, diagnostic bronchoscopy. And uh, sometimes a PET-CT can take uh, several weeks to get. Ideally, it should be done uh, much sooner than that, but it's not. How do you motivate um, or to discuss these issues with your administrators to ensure that, you know, I'm getting a timely PET-CET so that I can diagnose and stage my cancer appropriately so that my patient ideally gets uh, the correct uh, treatment? You know, that that's a great question. Um, this study, of course, doesn't really shed light on that. We don't have data that we present on how to solve that problem, but it does give context to your question, saying that we should get that. Um, I actually don't blame hospital administrators for that. You know, um, really, that's an insurance issue, right, that we order the PET-CTs, and if you look at the delays in care, PET-CT delays because of insurance delays is a big one, right? It just takes a long time. So certainly, we need to work with the hospital administrators so that PET-CTs get done in a timely manner so that when the patient comes to the pulmonologist, uh, timely care, which is timeliness is one aspect of quality, can be achieved. Um, and this is also a, a context variable, right? That um, 
really requires work at a system level to improve it. It's not a characteristic of an individual patient. It's actually not even a characteristic of the doctor, right? You know, the PET CTs don't get approved in the state because the Medicare carrier isn't accountable for the quality and speediness of their approval process. And what's missing in the system is accountability of insurers. There's no negative penalty for being slow or putting up extra barriers, right? The insurance companies don't incur a cost when they delay care by asking, by um, giving excessive barriers to physicians, by having a secretary or some unskilled person call and reject the doctor and then requesting endless phone calls. So that lack of accountability in the system of checks and balances for the insurers is missing. True. So that's what here's the situation. Let's say the situation that I've encountered. You see a patient for a lung mass. You would like to get the PET CT done before you do the initial bronchoscopy because you want to make sure you do a thorough job the first time. But because the PET CT takes such a long time, you end up having to do the bronchoscopy, which bronchoscopy which diagnoses the cancer. Then you get the PET CT afterwards, and you have to go back and do a staging bronchoscopy. It sounds uh, rather crazy that you have to go back and do two procedures when you could have done one, and if you had had the PET CT done initially, uh, how would you get around that? Well, in our institution, that's a common scenario, um, super common actually. Since we use general anesthesia, we would, I always do a staging, full staging. So if you have a CT only and there's, um, let's say, a, a right-sided, right upper lobe mass and there's a, an enlarged by CT station 7 lymph node, I'm going to do full staging if I can't get a PET. That's my, my default setting is full staging. Now, if you have a right upper lobe and all the lymph nodes are negative by CT, but there's no PET scan, okay, and for whatever reason, context for this patient is I cannot get one, I will still do full staging on that patient because this way I save them possibly undergoing two procedures, right? So I, I always do full staging if I have just a CT scan. And there's data to support that, right? Um, in patients who have PET-CT negative uh, lymph nodes, the chance of finding occult nodal disease is small. And Hal and Homer can give you those probabilities They're, depending on your age, the type of cancer, the location, central versus peripheral, and um, uh, uh, the PET-CT, which we talked about, your chance is going to probably be under 5%. But that's if you have a PET and CT. If you have just a CT scan, you'll see that the chance of having occult nodal disease goes up. Why? Because some of those patients who are CT negative are actually PET positive, but without the PET, you can't find it. And that was published actually a long time ago, looking at, I think Felix Hirth did it. They did a study with I could be getting the author wrong. I apologize to the authors if I did. Um, just CT negatives. And, you know, they find like 10% will have a nodal involvement, um, you know, in, in that ballpark. So the PET scan does add value to the patients. And conversely, you know, if they had done the PET, occasionally you'll say, hey, wait a minute. I did the PET and I find distant occult metastasis. And that would change what you do bronchoscopically right? Oh, now you're right. I just have to do, since you have the adrenal met 
it's pretty clear cut, shows up on the pet. I just need to do a diagnostic um, EBUS since clearly you have M1 disease or maybe you have multiple bone lesions which didn't show up and you didn't have symptoms. So there is real value there. And but that's the way I approach the problem when I cannot get a PET scan. But uh, I'm very lucky I, I usually can get one. Yeah, and you're also lucky in that you've got general anesthesia to take the time to do the staging. So how would – there are a lot of clinicians in the United States who don't have the luxury of having PET CTs beforehand, and they also don't have the luxury of uh, general anesthesia. Um, obviously, it needs to move to the point where they're not luxuries, but they're uh, standard practice. How would you motivate to uh, clinicians around you or to your administrators about uh, getting anesthesia time, or, or what argument would you put forward? I would put forward the arguments that that you just brought up and you discussed, and you know you, you need to uh, form a coalition of uh, stakeholders who are well armed with the data, who can make the case to decision makers, the people who have the resources, that this should be done. So who are the stakeholders? Well, oncologists are stakeholders because it's going to affect their chemotherapy. Um, thoracic surgery is stakeholders, right? They, they don't want to do futile surgeries any more than we do, but they, but they do want to do surgeries to help patients when appropriate. So they're stakeholders. Certainly radiation oncology is. Patients are stakeholders, right? You know, they're the biggest stakeholders. And of course, pulmonary medicine, you know, anesthesia, ironically, should be a stakeholder, but in some institutions, they don't want to come to the bronchoscopy lab for whatever reason. They feel it's unsafe, it's a change for them, you know, and getting time in the OR is just not possible because of scheduling. So each instance, each hospital has its own local challenges and problems, whether it's um, different groups which don't want to do it, or lack of resources. So you always have to solve those political problems and economic problems locally. But it's useful to identify the stakeholders, show each stakeholder group that their interests really are aligned with the patient interests. And that's where hopefully data uh, can make things clearer. And I think there's an abundance of data now to show that this is the case. I mean, there's an abundance of data to show that PET-CT scans are useful. You would think they would be able to affect change, but clearly affecting change when one group, the insurers, are not responsive or accountable is a problem. At least on the aspect of general anesthesia, it should be more doable. And I think, to be honest, a lot of hospitals have gone that way. If you look 20 years ago, how many hospitals had general anesthesia available in their Bronx suite? It was fairly low. When I was a fellow, we didn't have any anesthesia ever available in the Bronx suite. You know, but now that was a long time ago. So we have made progress, um, but we're not there yet. No, we definitely are making progress, and I think you've given our listeners a, a, a some great information to, to go ahead and uh, effect change. David, you've been uh, really great in sharing some great insights about your study. I do want to give you the opportunity to uh, provide us with any concluding remarks or anything that we haven't covered in uh, the podcast that you think our um, audience would need to know. Um, no, thank you for the podcast, and thank you for the opportunity uh, to discuss this with the group. I, I w- would say the one thing is um, uh, Paula uh, Zuniga, who's one of my uh, medical students and 
uh, Gabby Martinez, they're the lead authors. Uh, they're both medical students. They're not fellows. Uh, they're not residents. And uh, they've been trained uh, with, with me on clinical research methodology. And the, what I would say is that all of us as physicians can benefit somewhat by sharpening our clinical epidemiology, clinical trials um, knowledge. You know, it's an ongoing learning thing. And the reason it can help is it can help our patients. It can help inform our arguments to acquire resources and to better deploy those resources. And that includes educating the next generation of people who hopefully will be better than us um, at doing this kind of thing. So it really does uh, take a a broad skill set and a broad coalition to affect meaningful change. Uh, kudos to you and kudos to your uh, med students for doing such a great job. A very big thank you to Dr. Oost and a, uh, for a really stimulating conversation and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper and this is a chess podcast.